Okay, so Richard and I just spent about five minutes trying to whistle through our fingers because we... Using WikiHow as a reference. Yes, because we didn't want to talk about the muse. Yeah. Can we please just... I had I felt like I had they had to have been kidding during the beginning. Like this was number one, one of the worst. This was probably the worst beginning to a DS9 episode, and probably one of the worst beginnings to a Star Trek episode. Really? And yeah, and I because it's just like, am I pregnant? And I, I thought they had to be fucking kidding me. Like this was just it was just a terrible time. I don't know. I mean, yeah the 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 weird thing is okay so. The Lowox on a Troy stuff is obviously the A story of the episode. And the Jake with his weird... The titular muse. Sexual predator woman is obviously the B plot of this episode, even though it's called the muse and not, I don't know, the pregnant Lowoxana or something. And that's strange, right? Because Jake's... I feel bad for Jake. When Jake gets an episode, finally... It's this. Yeah, poor and guy. why what what does this tell us about Jake? It's not interesting. Well, I have to say Jake's always liked older women and there is obviously something, you know, he is trying to get his mother back in in that. I mean, there you know, this is, you know, maybe very simple and Freudian, but there you know, Jake has consistently liked girls who are older than him. Yes. Um and this is another I don't know, it's just and he really wants to be – I don't know. This was – while I liked the way that they ended the storyline, the story was a half-assed anti-drug episode. And it was just terrible. Huh. I I don't know that I agree with that. He but. meets somebody who can unlock his creativity, but it makes him sick. I mean the scene when he's in there upstairs and he's like half comatose, that's, you know, Cisco finding his son on heroin. I mean, that's, that's, I think, what they were trying to go with this but episode. But people don't take heroin to be creative. No, but people do do drugs to be creative. Maybe. I don't know. I, I think it's, that that's... I mean, it's... That that just seemed like if this episode was about anything, that that's what it was about. If that's the message of the episode, it's so buried as to be unrecognizable. I don't agree with you. Okay. I, I don't think it's an anti-drug thing, and I think <laughs> you're reaching for something to justify 20 minutes we spent with that. Well, yeah, I figure like you I, know I, one of, you know one of the Reagans gave him money to make this episode. The whole thing is just, I mean, it's not. I mean, it's not interesting. It's it's Jake sitting around writing. Literally, the shot is just Jake over and over again writing while yeah. a woman is behind him using sci-fi magic and going, oh, 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 and he gets nosebleeds. And then it ends. And then you're just like, what, what am I supposed to know about this? I mean, okay, Jake is, he wants to be a writer. He's growing up. You know, he's 17 or something yeah. at this point, even though he's still wearing whatever the hell he's wearing. And... <laughs> He meets this mysterious older woman. He's he's intrigued by her. Although part of the problem with the muse is that the, the character, not the yeah. episode, although it is a problem with the episode as well, is that she's super creepy. And she is so obviously yes. some sort of predator from moment one that we see her get off the ship and Jake and her lock eyes. She is so obviously... A, a problem yeah. that uh, yes, Jake is naive. 
Jake is you could for, s- for someone that has spent his time on a space station, which has all sorts of people going through it and in and out of it. For someone whose father is a you know Starfleet captain at this point. He's a very sheltered kid. Yeah. He doesn't have a lot of real-world experience. Well, maybe because his father is a starship captain, he's able to be a bit more sheltered about it. I mean, let's face it. the uh, Jake is going to be, you know... Oh, Odo is Odo is making sure that nothing really bad is happening to Jake. You know, for the most part, everybody is kind of watching out. He for is, him. even though things. So Jake were- disappears for four days, and no one's like, "Where's Jake?" No, you're Odo's right. not doing a very good job. No, this I week. never. Well, that's because he's dealing with Lawaxana Troy. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Lawaxana Troy is actually the villain of this episode. <laughs> You've unlocked the key. I, I I think this is the case. No, but I mean. I mean he isn't really going to go, especially given the closeness of his relationship with his father. Uh-huh. It really isn't going to be until, like, you know, an instance like this that Jake's going to be really alone enough to get into trouble. I mean, also keep in mind the version we see of Jake when he's, you know, loses his father in The Visitor. I mean, he, he goes kind of crazy idiot you know, doesn't know what to do you know so yeah he doesn't it, it is true he doesn't really know what pitfalls are out there because he has been largely sheltered and he is going to go head first into the you know first problem he sees that said you know he is intended to take the muse as exotic and mysterious and all of that and she doesn't to to us as the audience come off that way she does come off as you know obviously threatening rather than just intriguing well her name is anaya right and so she comes into the episode and i agree with you but but you know she's, she's talking about visceral writing she's talking about i helped yeah i've helped yates and i you know it's like okay and and it, it's it's i don't get a good sense of who she is i don't get a good sense of why she's doing this i don't really get a good sense of of what she's getting out of this she's some sort of energy being which i'm sure you're really excited oh, about yeah. because it's been quite a while since we've had one and you know, uh, uh, for 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 people that have forgotten, Richard hates energy beings. Uh, long-standing trek about. They're just the stupidest thing since the original series. And I'd forgotten about energy beings, and and this is this is well, Star Trek has moved away from that because I thought it was better than this shit. This was just no. <laughs> but okay, she needs psychic energy to survive. That's what she feeds on, or that's what it feeds on. She's not actually a woman. I I don't think she's all that attractive. I'm not a straight man, so I can't speak to that. But generally speaking, I don't think that horseshoe head crab (laughs) foreheads are something that men find attractive. No, no, it it is true. I mean, Star Trek Trek has never, as a franchise, has not had trouble showing us a sexy alien lady. You know? And, and, And so, yeah, I'm not particularly buying this. Right, like why why is Jake so intrigued with her? And and I think that's kind of the the, the problem with the yeah. episode is that Jake's story feels like they need to have a Jake story. Let's get Jake into a little bit of trouble. I mean, I do like the tie back to to the visitor, you know, yes. because the, the the novel that he writes or the novel that he almost writes is called Anselm, and that was the novel that uh, oh, uh, yeah. was established that he wrote in in the visitor. And you know, uh, uh, number one, I don't know why it's called that, but it's implied that that's a novel about his life on DS Nine, and frankly. 
I wonder if the ending of the series is going to be Jake closing the book. Well, that was the book I wrote about my experiences as DS. No, I don't know. No. But <laughs> no, it, it is clear that he does want to write the series in a way. He does want to make sense of his experiences. Well, uh, he wants to – I mean Jake is is a, a, a person, a character that – is I mean you know they say you should write what you know. Jake is obviously trying to work through his his life, which you know, is and what you do when you're 17. You know you write a your autobiography. It's fine, and if he's going to get into a little bit of trouble and he's going to meet a weird lady, alien lady who's going to suck his brain and 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 <laughs> almost kill him, that's fine. You know I just I, I don't again I just I don't know what we're supposed to get out of any of this. You know Jake is. Jake is naive. Well, we know that. Jake is a writer. Well, we know that. Jake really wants to uh, write a great Federation novel. Okay, we know that. Uh, What is this? I mean, I just – fundamentally, what is this? That's my question. No, that that is true. On both counts, what is this? Yeah, and I think that that, you know, we'll we'll talk about the Lubbock's on a Troy stuff, but I think that that I I don't want to leave this yet because it it is – there is a fundamental tension at the heart of this episode, which I can't figure out, which is, is this just an ill-conceived idea? Is this just a bad idea? Uh, you know, is I, it is it saying that Jake is getting lost in his writing? You know, I think it's very convenient that the show sends Cisco and, and Cassidy Yates off to Bajor. Um, you know, Jake doesn't want to go. Okay, that whatever. That's fine. It's a convenience. It's a contrivance. I understand that. But... For this woman to appear just at the right time that Cisco is off the station, that Jake is alone. You well, know, no, it's no. Been, it's he, been... he, he sends Cisco off the station because of this woman. Remember, that was the uh, – he – apparently Jake had this idea for this camping trip or whatever. He meets the woman and then Cisco's all, let's go. And he's like, well, no, re- regardless, you But the, the, though, the, the timing is still very, very convenient. Well, you need some reason to get Cisco off the station because no, we don't. Because if Cisco doesn't leave the station, then we don't get this episode. That's true. Well, yeah, I, I guess that's that's the that's the point. Because it's right, you know, Odo may be distracted enough to not know what's going on with Jake for a couple of days, but uh, Cisco would. <laughs> Cisco would. I mean, why doesn't Kira? Meant, like, where is Jake? I mean, like, you kind of get the sense that you know. J- I get the sense from Cisco that Cisco knows that his son is growing up, but he's still yeah. not really fundamentally treating him as an adult yet and i kind of get the sense that if cisco is going to be off the station for a few days he's going to have a conversation with a couple people and say hey just keep an eye on jake so that's also a problem i don't really and frankly i mean i i i would say even the other people you know he mentions to dax you know oh do you want well would you want me to you know see all ducking on jake like dax and kira would probably volunteer for that right and and so you get these scenes with with Jake. I mean, the, the the fundamental the fundamental you know narrative of Jake's you know plot. The arc of his plot is he meets this woman. He is in her quarters for something like four days straight, writing, not eating, not drinking anything, just just getting his brain sucked while she's you know letting him write. And then uh, uh, he gets rescued by Cisco. And you know yeah. it's just kind of like. Why? What? What? What am I getting out of this? You know, it, it doesn't tell us anything about the character. Really, it doesn't really tell us anything about Cisco that we didn't already know. And that would all be fine if it was entertaining or interesting, but yeah. it's not. Yeah, I guess that's the other thing. You know, it, 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 it's the scenes in some ways made me feel uncomfortable, but not in an edifying way or not in a interesting way. Yes, exactly. And and again, it's it's you know it's very similar to Sub Rosa in a way. You know, it's it's. A ghost character of some sort. Yes. It's it's very sci-fi magic-y. And 
it's not necessarily the supernatural. They do sort of science away the explanation. Bashir says something about, you know, neurons or whatever the hell he says. It's not really important, but there is sort of a science no. explanation given for this. Tachyons. Something like that. Chronotron particles had all to do with it. You're going to love Voyager. <laughs> uh, and and so at the end of the day, it's just a character that's getting sucked into a Literally. semi-supernatural you know, event that is spanning centuries because she does mention all these writers yeah. that she's helped along the way and, you know. And then she goes away and nothing – she's not captured. Nothing happens. You know, it's just kind of like – what? Like, Yeah, this is when DS9 is at its weakest when it's obviously abandoning a plot halfway through because there have been a couple of episodes where there's been a character like that and there's like, poof, I'm away now. I'm gone and, you know, what the hell just happened? Again, not – it wasn't an episode. It was just a bunch of shit that happened. It feels like a shaggy dog story. Yeah. You know, it's just kind of like, what is the point of We didn't even get to see a shaggy dog. Right, exactly. Aquiel was a great shaggy dog story. Um, (laughs) Well, let's talk about Loaxana because this is her last appearance. We never see her again. And what a fucking appearance to get her at. So the last one we saw her was, which one? Um, I don't remember, actually. That was the one where um, was it fascination? I feel like it like might be fascination. So I, I I know it was at the end, you know, when that is when Odo realizes he's in love with Kira and she says to him like, you know, I know you're in love with her and yeah. she leaves. So, um, but that I mean that was a nice note to leave her on. And you know, Eric and I really like Luxon yes. Troy. We did. If you are a, one of our patrons, and you know. We have a episode just about Luoxana Troy for you, and stay tuned to the end of the episode. Uh, but well, if you would like to listen to it, you can go to patreoncom slash show and give us five dollars a month. You don't have to wait. <laughs> um, but there are, you know, I was a professional fundraiser for five years. <laughs> I know what I'm doing. Luoxana is a character that is alternately treated with a lot of dignity and very seriously, and then treated as a joke and i don't know there is a degree to which the situation that she's gotten herself in is you know what this reminds me of she was in a very similar situation in your favorite episode and my favorite episode the one with alexander and the mud baths uh oh yeah i guess yeah because her plot is she's going to you know, she's betrothed to this guy that she essentially met through Tinder, and uh, <laughs> he has all of these, you know, he's very conservative, you know, she she has to wear a dress to her own wedding, you know, and, and it's not good. So, and at the end of that episode, you know, she realizes, no, this is, you know, there is much more to life that I don't, I'm okay if I'm not alone. You know, I, I'm okay being alone as long as... I would rather be alone in myself than, you know, be in a relationship and not be able to express myself. So this kind of obvious, oddly enough, undoes that episode. You know, I don't agree with you, actually. Okay. I, I like the Loaxana stuff in this episode quite okay. a bit, and I think it's actually really strong. And I think you're you're misreading it because you forget that he doesn't reveal his true colors until after they're married. So – that doesn't undo anything that she said. No, that you know, is fair. She meets somebody. She's having a good time. He says all the right things. She trusts him. And then as soon as they get married and she gets pregnant, he completely does a 180 and yes. becomes a completely different person. And to her credit, she gets the hell out of there. No, that you're right. That is fair. That is. So, you know, and I think that that while, you know, I, 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 
I like the fact in general that Deep Space Nine does not treat Loixana Troy as a joke, treats no. her as a very serious character. You know, I don't know that this is necessarily the send-off for Loixana Troy that I would have mm. written for her. I don't even know that this was intended to be her final appearance. Uh, you know, this the story, interestingly enough, I don't know if you noticed in the credits, but it was uh, the story was by Major Roddenberry. Really? So, you know, in conjunction with, I think, Ron yeah, yeah, Moore yeah. or somebody like that. But, you know, so most likely she said, oh, I'd like this character to have this kind of story. Okay, that. But I think that it, it does. I like when Loaxana Troy reveals her her vulnerability. And and the one yes. character, and again, of course, this is something that is very consistent in her, I think, what is this, her fourth appearance in Deep Space Nine? Yeah. That is very consistent throughout her appearances on this show is that the only person that she's really truly able to reveal her vulnerabilities to is Odo. Yes. And... I like the fact that the end of the episode is a nice moment for Odo and Loaxana to come to some sort of understanding about their roles in each other's lives. Yeah, I mean that when he, I will say that you know I like where the their plot ended, and I like the moments that they had, and I like that this does give it. In a way, it was worth it for the – we talk about, well, what was – what do we get out of Jake's storyline? Nothing. You know, even if I didn't really like most of Loaxana's plot line, this was worth it for that bit at the end where Odo is actually declaring how he feels about her. And it's very clear how much this – how much he has just changed from the very beginning. This is the polar opposite of – you know, being in a relationship involves compromise and you end up, you know, wanting to do one thing and watch it. When he's talking about how meeting Luaxana has you know, changed him and, you know, caused him to start connecting to other people, that is, that was worth it. And again, also, I do like the poignant, I do like the poignancy of how, you know, he has decided that she is a very important person to him, but they still want it in different ways. And yeah. they can't, they will just never, they are a little star crossed. And also that, that Loaxana is, uh, 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 more, I don't know if she's more in tune with Odo or understands him a little more than some other people. You know, I think that we, we've talked in the past about, um, you know, the fact that I think, especially in, in, in an episode, um, like, uh, uh, uh is it Ch- not Shakar? Um, the one episode where he and Kira get together, um, which the name of it is escaping me, but it was a few oh, weeks yes, ago. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, that, that a lot of the characters uh, that we see on the show, uh, they like Odo, they they see him as a real person, but to a to a large degree, I don't think that they think that he has a full range of emotions or they, they kind of... But, you know, he's, he's said as much to them. And so yes. I don't know that it's unfair for them to really not think that he's capable of, like, romantic love or, or, or those kind of things. But but Loaxana, you know, she comes into his quarters and she immediately says, "Oh, these are for shapeshifting." You know, like yes, no, the, that she she gets him, and I think this episode is the, kind of the culmination of that, and especially that final scene where you where you said, you know, Odo is finally, you know, sort of declaring what he really feels for Loaxana yeah. and what he thinks about her, and more and importantly, also, what he is capable of feeling because I yeah I I don't think anybody in that room quite clicked that it, it it's it, not even that he felt that way about Loaxana, but that he could feel that way about anybody. You know, Kieran knows that he's one of you know they are two very close people, but the way they're again that episode the the Shakar Part Two episode yeah. Uh, the way that ends is her confused and not realizing that she's kind of hurt him a little bit. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, that it's, I think it's actually, it, it works nicely that, um, you know, really there are no other main characters in the episode except for very brief snippets of it. Yes. You know, and I, I wonder if the episode would have been stronger if we had really made this only about Loaxana, Troy, and yes. Odo and, 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 and leave aside all of the Jake stuff. You know, it's almost like the show can't commit to a very serious look at Loaxana, Troy without having some other sort of thing going on. Yeah. Which I think is unfortunate because I really do think that there would have been enough here to have this be the A plot and at legitimately. Well, it is, it almost, it is the A plot, but I think. But it's not supposed to be because of the name it, of the episode. Have it be the only. Yeah. Well, you could. The, I mean, you I could mean, make the argument that that. Loaxana is Odo's muse. You, you, Certainly, but they the, the episode doesn't do. I don't know that I would make that argument, but that are a good version of this episode would have had that. Yes, yeah, uh, or a good version of this episode would have also tied together yeah. the Jake and Odo and Loaxana plots a little more directly. It almost, yeah, I almost get the sense that uh, they intended this to be a Jake episode with Loaxana Troy's the B plot, and that just kind of. As they were writing at the Loxana Troy was just much more interesting. I, you know, and I do, well, that's certainly true. I wonder if it's nice because Loxana Troy, she mentions Kestra at one point, her daughter yes. died. And this is obviously her kind of, you know, she's having a son, she's not having a daughter, but it is the moment where she realizes that she's kind of getting another opportunity to. Uh, uh, kind of maybe not undo that mistake, but she she's very very protective of this child because of that. Yes, and and yet I I will agree that I I like that she talks about Kestra, but in a way that she'll still always feel that pain and always feel that loss, but it is healed. She yes, is, this you know given uh, and given that it has only been a couple of years since she really finally started to deal with that, it is nice to see that she is actually and frankly her character is a little different in DS Nine and this is a version of her that has started to work out work that out and come to terms with it and accept that. Yes, absolutely, and I think that that she's going to be a good mother to this child. I think that the fact that she's fighting so strongly to to keep the child and 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 have it be raised in the way in which she wants it to be raised, you know. To I me, mean, let's be clear. I mean, the whole Tavnian thing with how they separate the sexes and all that it, kind of how stuff. How does that even work? I, I mean, whatever. It's not really. I mean, you know, it's fine. Whatever. I it's, it, weird yeah, alien. Yeah, weird know. alien culture <laughs> of the week. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I think you know, it's I don't know. There's not. There's not that much substance here, really. I think that the episode doesn't necessarily tell us anything we didn't already know. I think that, again, having it be an explicit, you know, Odo revealing his depth of feelings for Loaxana is nice. I think that Loaxana is treated very respectfully in this episode. Um, but it's her last appearance, and she goes away, and we never see her again. Yeah. So I, I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah, I no for a character that's as problematic as as she has been over the whole course of TNG and and, and the half of DS Nine that she appears in. Um, you know, like I said, or like you said, we we did do that patron special a couple months ago in Lovex on a Troy, and we both really like her as a character, and we think that yeah. she gets a lot of um, a jokes. She's the butt of a lot of jokes unfairly, and 
at the end of the day, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's a nice send off for her. She's going off. She's starting a new life. She's going to have you, a child to take care of. But, but you get the sense that they left it open enough that, all right, well, season five, then, you know, the baby's born and, you know, what's going to happen then? And she, ha- you know, and it, they, you get the sense they kind of figured, all right, well, of course we'll be able to have more locks on a Troy episodes and it just never happened for one reason or the other. Yeah. And I don't know why. You know, I, I, I mean, because Major Roddenberry didn't die until I think like 2008 or something. Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. not like she was she was dead. Was she starting to be in poor health? Maybe I don't think so. Um, I, I don't really know. Yeah, I don't really know. So that's pretty much it. I do want to say a couple things though, uh, just kind of um, before we move on to um, to to for the cause is number one. I don't know if this was explicit in the episode done to show exactly how little her husband thinks of her. Just the actor didn't know how to pronounce her name, but he calls her Luxwana. <laughs> I noticed that. And I got the sense that I, I, I feel like there was a tiny reaction from her where she was, you know, had given up on being bothered by it type of reaction. Like did, could the actor just not pronounce her name or what? I mean, I know it's a kind of a weird name to pronounce, but it's strange. I mean, this isn't the he isn't the only actor who's had to say the Waxana, and you would assume that someone not would that hard to say exactly. And uh, the other thing I want to mention before we move on to uh, to for the cause is that uh, this apparently was a minor B five guest star week because we had Lita Alexander playing the nurse. Uh, the character, the actor who played Lita, Lita Alexander from B Five, playing the nurse. You don't mean, you don't notice anything. No, no. And uh, the guy who played um, Loaxana's husband was one of the techno mages. Oh, I really don't remember those. Yeah. Well, I have a good, I have a good uh, memory for faces, and I don't think you do. Okay. So that's probably why you don't mean to notice these things. What's B Five? B Five. Babylon Five. I know what Babylon Five is. Okay. Let's talk about for the cause. So Cassidy's back. Yeah. This is one of those weeks where I felt kind of dumb. There were a lot of – it was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I Watching this episode, I was mentally going back to the past couple weeks of episodes and stuff that I said and like knowing what your reaction has was obviously to them. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about. Cassidy Yates and the elephant in the room, Eddington. Yeah. Uh, you were fooled. On both counts. And I think that you've mentioned Eddington a few times on this podcast, and you've said he's a good Starfleet officer, and he's never going to do anything that's against the Federation, blah, blah, blah. And I just sat here. Yeah. Kind of like I'm swallowing the cat. Like, <laughs> no, like, yep, that's true. Yeah, that's absolutely what Eddington <laughs> is. Uh-huh. Yep. Well. Knowing exactly what was going to happen. Uh, but he had everybody fooled. Well, he had you fooled. He had certainly. the people on the show fooled. And uh, I, my main question for you is, does this feel earned? Oh, hell yeah, on all counts. I mean, again, number one, all of the cast, there was a lot of the stuff re- relating to Cassidy that was, for example, the job on Bajor, that in at the time was just she's getting a job, obviously was them setting this up. That's why she was getting that particular job. Or there were a f- bunch of things like that which worked. And frankly, Ed- Eddington worked because it very much made sense that that was all a disguise. That Obviously, he was sucking up in, in a very particular way and waiting for his moment. Uh, yeah, he was in a way 
in a way, being the company man was a really good cover for him because he – Eddington has always acted a little too by the book in a way which is – the show is always almost implied is the reason he's never going to be a captain because he's just Well, not, he's never going to be a captain because he's in yellow. What, fair, but – and also he's in yellow because he doesn't have really the he, – he doesn't have the character to actually do something against the rules. That's the – version of himself he has always made clear and you know he's going to do whatever and you know he's going to go against his captain because the federation says so and you know that's how his loyalties work and you know that that moment in particular was when he completely lost Cisco's trust in him in a way which meant that him being a maquis agent was the last thing that he would think i mean it was a very clever i don't was that the intention the moment that they introduced Eddington's character? I, I believe so, Because yes. he's been at least two seasons, and I, I, I liked that very much. I believe, was... I believe it was. You know, it's funny. I think Eddington's a very, a very interesting character, and I'm not going to like surprise you by saying this he is not the last that back. we see of Eddington. Oh, it, I, I frankly think that he's going to be a very interesting villain now. Yes. And one of the things that I think is so interesting about Eddington as a character is that why, yes, he's very by the book. He's very much a Starfleet man. He's very, very buttoned down. Uh, but that is not something that is going to raise any suspicion. Yeah. There's a lot of characters like that. There's a lot of people in Starfleet like that. And most of those people are mid-tier. He is going to stay, you know, kind well, of mid-tier but, but trusted. And that's the thing, too. And I think that's what is so important about the character of Eddington is that you know, we see that some character that, especially on the command, you know, the the, the senior staff of Deep Space Nine, uh, uh, Kira in particular, do disagree with Cisco from time to time. Yeah, and do go toe to toe with him. Uh, to a lesser degree, people would disagree with Picard, but they would disagree with Picard. You know, kind of in his ready room. You know, yes. people would disagree with Kirk all the time. <laughs> uh, and Eddington doesn't do that, but Eddington is not on the senior staff. Yeah. And so he's not really in a position to, to, to do that. So it makes sense that he's a by-the-book man. He's very you know, loyal to uh, uh, the, the Starfleet command. You know, he's, he's a character that does his job, does it very competently, and that's obviously all a cover. Like, yeah. he's in the Maquis. He's, he, you know, he's, he, he, he's had a career to when he can say, listen, I don't feel comfortable doing this one mission. Trust me with the other one. Even though that's sensitive, I'm Eddington. You can trust me with it. Yeah, you'll get it done. It'll be fine. I mean, he 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 needs to he he managed his to frame his request in a way that Cisco doesn't even need to think twice. And well, and he's even I think it's even wilier than that, of course, because Cisco has this. You know, the whole the the, the entire episode is very masterfully constructed because you have this episode set up at the very beginning where Eddington and Cisco, Eddington and Odo come to Cisco and say, listen, we, yeah. we suspect Cassidy of being a, a Maquis smuggler. And so the entire episode is about this investigation of Cassidy, is about Cisco's conflicting feelings surrounding this, his, his you know, obviously his professional um, duties to investigate this fully and to arrest, Ka- arrest her at the end of the episode. But also, obviously, he has a lot of personal feelings about yes. this. He doesn't want this to be true. He loves Cassidy. He's getting in very serious with her. He knows that Jake is going to be devastated by this. And it's all about Cassidy until the very end. Yeah. And what Eddington does is very wily because he is basically – Cassidy is being used as a pawn. Let's yeah. not forget he... that. And, and Eddington is saying – 
he's using Cisco's sort of personal connection mm-hmm. with Cassidy to short circuit Cisco's brain in a way. Yeah. You know, because remember, Ka- Eddington says that he doesn't want to be on the mission because he doesn't want to be put in the position of arresting Cassidy Yates. Frank, and Cisco's like, yeah, I understand that. Okay. He, I would say goes, frankly, I think he uses Cisco's kind of dislike towards him because, because Eddington basically implies that, look, if something goes wrong and Cassidy gets hurt or killed, like obviously, you know, I'm the, you, you already don't like me and it's my responsibility. I can't handle this, you yeah, know, a- yeah. and this is the one thing that I've ever said, like, I don't think I'm ready to do. So like, this is my one in a way. Yeah. And yeah. A- a- and it isn't until the end that it is really clear that the suspicion doesn't really come from anywhere besides Eddington himself. I mean, yeah, they have just this little circumstance. And yes, it is. It, it is indeed the case that. Cassidy is the smuggler, but it's not like Odo found this out. No. It's not like any of this information, if they had just looked at it, would have come up on their own. It's Eddington who sets this ball in motion. Well, yeah, because Eddington's double agent. Yeah. He knows exactly what's going on. Oh, yeah, and that's the entire reason they, you know, obviously recruited Cassidy. I, I, I'm not clear whether they hired her after or before she met Cisco, but part of me thinks that it may be the case that they waited and, you know, at, once they started dating and then she got this job at Bejor, they made their approach. Yeah, it and. could be. <laughs> well, and, you know, I want to let, let's grapple with the central the kind of question of the episode, which is that final scene uh, between Eddington and Cisco. Yes. And I think Eddington makes a very good argument, you know. This is, again, Deep Space Nine hmm. going even further down the road of questioning the, the, the understanding that the Federation is solely a force for good and puppies yeah. and love and candy in the, in the universe. Uh, you know, because he's right. The yeah. Maquis really haven't done anything to the Federation. Uh, they're all about fighting Cardassia. Yeah. And they've been put into an, you know, let's let's not forget that this was all set in motion by um, the Federation screwing them in in the seventh season TNG episode Journey's End, where that whole, you know, Cardassian Federation thing, they're swapping planets because they signed a new treaty. And, yeah. you know, they didn't have anything to do with this. And so the Federation is it's interesting because you can argue that. The Federation is not exactly operating in good faith here. You know, they they set up these colonies on mm-hmm. on the Cardassian border. Uh, yeah, because okay, they you know they want people to go out and 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 do what they want to do and establish new colonies. But also, it's self serving because it is a bulwark against Cardassian, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, expansion into yeah, yeah. Federation space. So that's number one. And then, of course, once things go haywire and go south. The Federation and Cardassians kind of swap planets, and now suddenly some Federation colonies are, are in Cardassian hands, and the, you know they don't like that. So they they start this war of attrition, this terrorist war with with Cardassia, and it's it's a situation where I think that you know Eddington might be going a little too far in saying, oh well, the reason why you really don't like the Maquis, the reason why Starfleet and the Federation is engaging yeah. in this in this you know operation against the maquis is because we you can't stand the fact that we left well there and is that's a not degree... that's not really you know no entirely He's... fair but i think there is a kernel of truth to that well here's the i mean he almost talks about uh 
the Federation like it's an ex with borderline personality disorder. I mean, it, it was one thing for he, he, gen, he the Maquis gen, genuinely feel that they have been screwed over and left and sold out by the Federation for this treaty, which there has been no main character who was thought that this treaty was a good idea. It, I think that from the moment that this treaty existed, the series, the franchise has made it clear this was a stupid move for the Federation to make. They yeah. should have been renegotiated. But, you know, in their desperation, frankly, for peace and wanting to be friends with the Cardassians, they took a raw deal. And they, you know, the Maquis feel, feel sold out by them. But Well, they were. They were. <laughs> But but the second the I mean, Maquis literally. Say, but the Maquis saying, Well, we don't want the Federation either is the Federation saying, Well, why wouldn't you want us? Like, why are you trying to be mean to us? Come on, play nice. Why are you playing by our rules that we don't want you to that we you don't even care about anymore? Because, you know, it, it seems like Well, I think yeah. it's a little different than that because, you know, if you recall the Federation and Starfleet basically come to them and say, Listen, you know, yes. this is not a good situation, but but here's the deal. This planet is now uh, uh, owned by the Cardassians, you need to leave. And but, what, but what happens is the colonists decide that their home is more important than being a part of the Federation. They renounce their Federation citizenship, and they're, they agree, essentially, to be under Cardassian rule. Yeah, so, but that's not really a ch- – the Federation almost sets up that choice shocked that people would take it. Um. Yes, but I, I think that – it doesn't it's, it's 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 a it's the tension at the heart of it which is you know the the state versus the individual and the federation seems to think that the individual or the society that these colonies have have created uh value their membership or loyalty or whatever in the federation yeah. more than they valued their home and, which is a weird thing to think in some respects because we know, for example, I mean, going back to to sort of you know the 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 paradise and and, and you know homefront paradise lost two parter from a few weeks ago yeah. that everyone in Starfleet and the Federation really does value Earth, even aliens, you know, and this is like the paradise, this yeah. is home, this is where they want to be, you know, we have to protect this at all costs. This is our home, right? And so there is an, uh, you know, and I think that individual Starfleet officers do recognize that. Yes. I think Picard understood that. I think that Cisco understands that. But they're put in an untenable situation where, again, wh- what's been sort of the the big question at the heart of Deep Space Nine, in some respects, is does the Federation and does Starf does does the Federation Council and does Starfleet Command understand what's going on out there yeah. on the front lines? Are they too removed from reality at this point? And I, I think that this episode is another mm-hmm. example in a long line of episodes of Deep Space Nine that are saying, yes, they are. Yeah. They're, to, a, to a very real degree, they know, I, I mean, there's been talk about is this an anti-Federation series? Is this an anti-Star Trek thing? Again, we've been talked about this because I don't think it says the Federation is uh, – Evil. The Federation isn't cruel. The Federation isn't mean. The Federation isn't bad. And I guess part of my blind spot with Eddington was that I didn't think he was not a Federation person. And right. one figures, well, as long as somebody is a Starfleet officer, he is still going to do you know what is right. I think it's making it very clear the Federation has a shitload of blind spots. The yes. Federation is almost you, – you say you know we think of the Earth as home. Well, 
yeah, not this little colony at the in Cardassian space now. Earth is your home. This is just where you're living, you know. And if you have to give it up, well, whatever. You still have Earth to come back to. I mean, put it. You know, most of the it, it was a very big deal for Cisco to stop thinking of Earth as home. Many of these people who are we've seen who are the characters in these various series. I mean, in both original series and Next Generation, they weren't on home. They were on ships. They were they were in a permanent state of traveling between places. So they don't really have that. Con- I think a lot of Starfleet people don't have that connection to a sense of home as one place. I think so, and I think that if you look, I think it's a good, it's a good, um, a uh, uh, good point because one of the things that I think is interesting and in how Cisco has been developed in the show as well is his, you know, when when the show starts, he's been tasked with bringing Bajor into the Federation, yeah, and this whole emissary business happens, and he's very uncomfortable with it, and then as we've seen in the past, you know, few weeks. Uh, especially in an episode like Ascension, he he's getting a little bit more comfortable with it. He's starting to appreciate Bajor. You know, where's that going to go? I don't know. Well, I do know, but I'm not going to tell you. But it, it's one of those things where the the show seems to be questioning the the assumption that Earth is is kind of the Ur ideal of where everybody wants to be. Yeah, all it's the not time. the center of the universe. It's not the center of the universe. And Eddington is. I mean, that is really. You know, to a certain degree, he's needling Cisco because, you know, Eddington is saying, well, the, the big problem is that you don't think that anybody would want to leave the Federation. Yeah. You even want the Cardassians to be in the Federation. You know, you you want them to take their proper seat on the Federation Council. And yes, Eddington is perhaps being a little blinded. Maybe he's by, a little dramatic, intense and emotional right now. Yes. And he's also being blinded by the fact that he, he may not like Cardassians very much because there's other things going on. You know, I don't think that the, we obviously know, especially from episodes like the Maquis two-parter from the second season, that the colonists are not exactly having a great time being under Cardassian rule. Uh, Cardassia doesn't seem to be sort of a, you know, if you, if you come from a society, if you come from sort of the rule of law uh, uh, that the Federation comes from where individual rights and these kind of things, Cardassia obviously is not that as we've seen. And so that is a tension. Uh, I don't there, you know, that's the thing. And I don't think that the show is the colonists are being a little naive in some respects, because I think that, you know, when they made the decision to, to, to leave the Federation, to renounce their Federation citizenship and to stay with Cardassia, I think that that was a little naive. I think that that was them going, Oh, well, everything will be fine. You know, and now they're sort of having to level up in a way. To a degree, there are people who have grown up fairly privileged, and they're om- you, you, I think of them going to the colonists almost as like you know activist tourism. Well, I'm going to go to a you know crappy country and build homes, you know, and it's right? Gonna be, you know, almost an adventure like that, and you know, well, we're going to renounce our federation system, and now shit's getting actually real. Yeah, yeah. And and that's the thing is that you know Eddington also says at the end of the episode, well, nobody leaves paradise, right? Yeah, and. That I think is, you know, if you could say that that Deep Space Nine, I think, has any sort of mission statement, I think it's that one where it's really examining, okay, so the Federation's a paradise. What does that mean? Yeah. You know, well, you know, because obviously Deep Space Nine is not a paradise. These colony worlds are not paradises. You know, Earth may be a paradise. You know, Vulcan may be a paradise. You know, all of the sort of like inner worlds of the Federation are obviously great places to live. But 
the Federation may have expanded too quickly. The Federation may be a little too naive. The Federation may have blind spots. Well, there's a uh, – I believe this is in more Gnostic interpretations of the whole Garden of Eden story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is uh, – there are interpretations of that which see the loss of paradise as a necessary step for humanity in a way as – you know, and, and think about – Thinking about it in terms of a metaphor for the you know the psych- the psychological development of a person starting off as a little kid you know you get all your stuff taken care of life is very easy and then you you grow up and things become much harder you know and you have a lot more responsibility but at the same time you gain more power as a per you know in, in, in your own agency, more independence, and s- such as that. The Federation, meanwhile, is of the well. We're giving you every need. Why would you leave Earth? You know, unless it's to convert more heathens out there, right? Um, and Edicted's version is saying, "Well, no, independence and a life outside of that framework is important to us." And yeah, no, I agree with that. But I also think that the the to be fair, you know, to, to criticize Deep Space Nine on this yes. point a little bit. You know, I, I don't know this, this kind of conception of the Federation or Earth as paradise. Yeah, is one that is very specific to Deep Space Nine. Yeah, you know, I don't think that we ever really. I don't think we ever get a mention of the word paradise is not one that's used in the Next Generation to yeah to describe the Federation, and so this is a very particular interpretation of it. I don't think it's an incorrect one, but I do think that it is a little bit, you know, it's kind of well, be- it's begging the question to a certain. I degree. would say that there it is possible that number one, these are the characters, and that's just the word that you know Cisco uses to describe it because, again, compared to DS Nine, compared to the Border Worlds, yes, Earth is a paradise. Compared hell even to Bajor at this point, it's a it's pretty paradisical. I'll compare it to where they were during the Bell Riots. I mean, if you took that versus Earth na- Earth in the time of DS9 where everybody's material needs are being taken care of. They have, you know, powers available everywhere, you know, those kind of things. Uh, yes, paradise is not a it, – it's certainly a metaphorical exaggeration, but at the same time, it's a pretty – it functions for the effect that they want it to have as something that is – working very well they believe and that they want to keep and protect and it's interesting that that sets up a difference between this is the first show that really does we've talked about this is the first time we've really been able to talk about civilians of the federation Mm -hmm. uh and there is almost that divide there's people who are living in paradise and then the people outside of it starfleet who are guarding that paradise yeah, I think so, and that the show does kind of go down that road a little bit more in the future as well. Yeah, but which which does seem like a logical place to take it, but at the same time, it is true. What if one of the major themes of DS Nine is that uh, in uh, with things are so good on Earth that they've forgotten how to govern in places that things aren't very good. Uh, yeah, yeah, certainly so. that disconnect is is at the heart of that. There is, you know, messages. The, the the next generation crew is going out to these, you know, outside worlds and sending reports back, and the Federation isn't really taking it seriously enough. Frankly, I think there is almost the implication that once you write a report of it, it stops being a vital event, and you know, it's not taken as seriously. It's just more data. Well, and also, I think you know, kind of to expand it out a little bit, I think that that one of the things that that Deep Space Nine does very well is uh, make. It's very good at world building. And yes. it's very good at at make you know, TNG for all of its wonderful qualities, 
was not really interested in examining uh, the the Federation, examining Star Trek as a, as sort of an entity, uh, sort of questioning some of the, the well, fundamental things at its heart. Because it was setting up the fundamentals. Well, really. it was. I it, would say it, it was. Is. A, it was a Star Trek show, and it was doing something very particular. It was telling stories in a very particular vein. They're very. It's a very good show, and Deep Space Nine is doing a different thing. There is again moments like Drumhead, for example. Drumhead is feels like something that's presaging DS Nine. But I also think that the Drumhead is a very. Uh, uh, it, it's it's an episode that is more about real world things yes. than it is about actually examining because oh. there's no implication that that the federation is actually corrupt or that this no is, you anytime know I mean? so anytime like, in tng other you know that there has been uh, some or for example the wounded uh there we have seen we see examples in tng of individual federation officers who have gone wayward somehow well deep space nine is a very star trekky star trek show. yeah this is one which says are these Ways of going wayward inherent in the system almost. Well, I, I think it's further than that. I think it's actually looking at it as a real thing. You know, I don't think that that Starfleet Command of the Federation in, in TNG were real things. That Yeah. You know, I think that they were they were plot devices. They yes, were, sure. you know, they certainly existed. But Deep Space Nine is very much a show that is like, okay, let's actually look at this. What would this actually function like? What would these people actually, you know, how does this work? Yes. Uh, It's, you know, and that's why I think Deep Space Nine took a long time to get the attention and sort of the acclaim that it did. You know, it's a very different show with very different aims than TNG. It is not a traditional Star Trek show in a lot of ways. And I think this episode is a perfect example of that. Well, let's let's talk about uh, Cassidy a little bit because you know I think that that she is obviously uh, you feel Cisco's you feel Cisco's horror at this. You feel Cisco's confliction yeah. at this. He's obviously feeling a lot of uh, terrible things, you know. And Cassidy in this episode is almost I don't know. You watch it and you just there's this sense of impending doom over yeah. everything. There, part of me wanted to. It's interesting, yeah. As wa- the second they said, we think Cassidy might be a Maquis, you know, working for the Maquis or smuggling for the Maquis. Fuck, it's true, isn't it? You know, there, there. I did not at any moment expect there to be a revolution. This was not one of those episodes. I and I knew this going in, um, where they're going to figure out how she was being framed, right? Yeah, you know, it's not an episode where it was all a mistake or she has a re- or she's not getting out of this one okay. And no matter what happens their relationship is not going to survive this. And, and I think, you know, uh, maybe, maybe not. Well, you know, I think that, 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 that is where the episode ends. I mean, and the fact that she comes back does make it clear that, you know, I, I mean, I like where they do end. You know, they do make it clear they, they ha- this thing was in a way bigger than both of them and they got caught up in something that's outside the relationship. But in in a way, Eddington's been lying this entire time about who he fundamentally is as a person. Cassidy Yates has not been fundamentally lying. She is still the person who enjoys cooking with Jake and, you know, enjoys watching baseball with Cisco. And, you know, the two of them, their relationship is real beyond that. Yes. And I don't get a sense that they ever really talk about politics. Although, you know, <laughs> but here's the thing about Cassidy and Cisco, though, is that, well, Cassidy in particular— uh, 
one of if there is a criticism to be made of this episode, it is that I don't know why Cassidy would do this. And that's fair. And yeah. that's to say, I don't know why Cassidy wouldn't do it. We haven't. We, yeah. There's there's li- very little information on either side to really make a determination. You know, obviously, Ka- they're coming down on the side that Cassidy is a Maquis sympathizer. You know, she. Th- you know, and that's the thing. Well, that, that's the thing that I think is really interesting about the episode as well is that it does kind of ex- it does kind of imply that this is a political question and yes. that you know Federation citizens have opinions about the Maquis that are not necessarily what the government thinks and Cassidy you know Cassidy was very clear about saying that she's not running guns she's not you know but well it's it's, still she's still helping the Maquis you think anytime you hear you know the way EU is dealing with refugee crisis and the way we will probably have to deal with the refugee crisis when Trump becomes president are there will be people who have very different views see starving kids and don't care about their politics and right you know that is where Cassidy is and Yes, maybe it would have been a one thing for her to say, well, I, you know, she has a brother who lives on one of the colonies, right? I mean, it's very easy to, for her to have a connection to someone who is on one of those colonies. Have you ever been to one of those border worlds, Ben? I know what it's like living under Cardassian. I can't let that go, you know? Yeah. She has plenty of reasons, and I, I, I will say I do buy that she is the kind of person who— you have the opportunity to take medical supplies to people who very badly need it and who the government is not helping. Cassidy is the kind of person, I think, who would her, – her sympathy just from a, from a pure human you know, dignity, from, from a social justice point of view, she would want to do that. Well, and also, too, what, what I think is, is kind of interesting about the episode is that I don't think that Cisco – I think Cisco is starting to question yes. – you know, he's obviously not going to suddenly decide to, to join the Maquis. He's not going to decide that he's not going to follow Starfleet orders if he's, you know, ordered to go into the Badlands and stop the Maquis. But I don't think that he thinks that what Cassidy is doing is beyond the pale. No. You know, he does still go to her and say, hey, let's just, you know, let's just go to Ryza. Let's just not do this. You know, and, and he wants it. He wants so desperately for her to choose him and their burgeoning life over being a Maquis smuggler. And at the end of the episode, yes, he does arrest her, but he's obviously heartbroken about yeah. it. Yeah. And I think it's 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 ambiguous as to whether or not I mean, she says she'll be back. You know, there is a degree to which she's going to serve her time and who knows what the political situation is going to be in a couple of years, frankly, too. I mean, that that's you're giving me a very interesting look, but you know, but just even extrapolating that, it is clear. I, I don't think by the end of this series, the Federation will still think that the Maquis can go fuck themselves. I think I don't think that the Cardassians are. I think the Cardassians might even be changing to the point where they think that oppressing these planets is a bad idea too. Uh, again, when she gets out of prison, who knows where the things are going to be? The the Maquis might need the Maquis might not even need to exist anymore. Yeah. Yeah, and I think too that that what what I find really uh, 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 kind of intriguing about Cisco's kind of a whole his reaction to her in yeah. this entire episode is that there's nothing in his demeanor or nothing in what he's saying or believing or feeling that that implies that he thinks that what Cassidy is doing is beyond the pale. No, you know he has again. A, she's not taking weapons. If she were taking weapons, it would be a different story. She's taking food and medicine. And I think that that's actually a really um, nuanced take on 
Cisco and what he believes is okay and what's yeah. not okay. Because I don't know that Cisco necessarily thinks that what Cassidy is doing is quote unquote capital W wrong. It's not in, she's not committing any moral error. She's she's breaking the law, but it's it's She's breaking the law. She's making things personally difficult for Cisco. But it's not like he feels that he yeah. still can't love her or be in a relationship with her because she's doing this. And again, and when her, she goes and serves her time and comes back to Deep Space Nine, who knows? Yeah, that's her. Her coming back is her both saying what I did. I did what I did. I let my people go because they didn't, you know, they they should not have to deal with this if they don't want to. They're not making this choice. They don't need to. Right. And I'm sh- I think that that last com- that conversation where he says, "Oh, let's go to Riza." There is almost the sense that she's kind of realize starting to click that he something's up. He's not he's acting very strange. Something's up, but she still needs to do this because it's the right thing, yeah. and she needs to go back and serve her time because that's the right thing too. And I think at the end of the day, sis. She needs to make it clear to Cisco that she is a person who is acting morally and in the best interest of other people. And that's frankly what Cisco does as well. And yeah. so they still it's her saying we are not different just because I did this thing that you it's your job to arrest me for and that you as a federation officer have to uphold. I'm not doing anything wrong. There's a very yeah, I think that there's a very clear understanding on on both Cassidy yeah. and and Ben's Parts that this is not personal and that they are victims yeah. of circumstance and victims of, you know, the larger forces that are surrounding their lives. And they're just, they're two people that are on sort of not necessarily opposite sides, but, you know, they're not exactly things aren't seeing really things. They're star crossed too. Yeah. Um, and I guess, yeah, both, well, that, that's interesting. Yeah. Both, both of these episodes have a relationship ending in a way where both you know people affirm that they care very deeply about each other, but just the situation is you know obviously Loaxana and Odo don't have as many political troubles between you know being together they they're they're yeah. all per- they're all just they want different things, but still these are very adult decisions that have been made, yeah. And I guess the last thing to mention before we wrap this episode up is, uh, you know, we haven't talked at all about about Garrick and Zial. And oh yeah, you know, I it's like them. it's fine. I hope they don't actually end up having a romance because I like that they are two people who just I, I, again they, they're both they're both exiles from their home. They both really don't have anyone who gets it. They're the only two people. They they both hate the temperature on DS9. They both feel equally uncomfortable there. And, you know, I do like that they can at least, even if they have a relationship which is just based on misery-loving company and they can at least complain about the same things, I think it's nice that they both have a friend. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's 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 a, a an interesting look at Garrick and especially a different side of Garrick. Yeah. You know, he's... Um, this is the first time he's le- he's really not sure what the hell her, her she wants. And also, you know, Kira is very protective of her. Yes. And there's that great scene where Kira confronts Garrick and is like, leave her the fuck alone. Basically. Yeah. And Garrick's like, what? And, you know, you don't know if Garrick is actually intimidated by Kira, if he's just playing it up. Garrick is very uh, confused well, by the whole situation. I would say because Garrick does. Garrick knows from the second he seems 
sees her that she must feel very similarly, feel in exile, feel out of place, and, you know, feel lost, not have anybody to talk to, and... I, I, I think I see him very much wanting to reach out to her, but seeing all these reasons why it's a bad idea, and even Kira, you know, whether he would be intimidated by just Kira is irrelevant because she's one of 20 things that's happened. You know, like, yeah, yeah. She, she's yet another reason. I mean, I, I, what I love is this is his conversation with, uh, 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 with Quark, when Quark's like, oh, well, but maybe, you know, Kira's doing that so that way, you know, to trick you and to lull, you know, and I, it's almost unclear to which degree, like, that's Quark fucking with him and just Quark, or that's just Quark spinning it out and, you know, just not even meaning anything by it. But Oh, I think one of the things <laughs> that I like about Quark that's always been uh, a very uh, a consistent character trait is that he has a big mouth and he doesn't yes. think before he speaks. And I don't think that there's anything that he's... And that he's always scheming in a way, too, because, like, that's how he kind of thinks, I you think know? he's legit. Legitimately, just like, well, I wonder if you know this might be. Oh well, you know, I think he's, it's just the way he's he talking is. about it, like he's watching a TV show. Yeah, you know? yeah, he has that much. No, uh, yeah, this is just a, re- a really good episode, yes, and I think was... you know the show is. Uh, there were a couple of rough spots, you know, Shattered Mirror and the Muse uh, in the back half of this season, but you know, as we get towards the end of the fourth season. Uh, no, you, I, I think we said that at one point, like, okay, well, they're, they're about, shit is about to go down. They're just kind of, you know, maybe they have five or six episodes, which are just like, you know, punching you in the face. And I, we're in the punching to the face section of the Oh, yeah. Season. Just wait until next week. <laughs> oh, man. No, because this was very much everything's different already. All right. Well, if you have any thoughts on either of the episodes of Deep Space Nine we just talked about, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at truckaboutshow.com. And if you would like to show some monetary support for the show, uh, please go to patreon.com slash truckaboutshow. You can find our uh, patron tiers. You can find out everything that you can get if you give us a little bit of money. Including uh, episodes about Luwaxana Troy. Very true. And uh, for example, Luwaxana Troy patron special. Or if you're intrigued by what we think about the Klingons, check mm. that out. That's what we did this month. Our social media username, where you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, is Truckabout Show. And as always, please leave us a positive iTunes review for Truckabout. It is the best way for new people to find the show. Next week, the second to last podcast on Deep Space Nine Season 4. We're going to be talking about To the Death and the Quickening. Oh, those sound very ominous. I could go for some quick. <laughs>